Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, it's pretty cool. I just got this uh, text a couple minutes ago, um, right before the service started. And as Pastor Scott was talking about um, how our generosity fuels the mission, I just want to share this with you. Uh, we are a part of a group of churches called the Summit Collaborative. We partner together, we collaborate to plant churches. Well, um, we had a church that was planting this morning in Port of Halifax up in Canada one of the most unreached places in North America. They launched their church this morning and 200 people showed up to hear the gospel this morning. Praise God. Um, it's, called, it's called Port City Church. Their pastor is Jeremy Dager. Uh, you can follow them uh, online and everything and we'll be giving updates. But we just, we love planting churches that we collaborate, you guys, we all collaborate together as a church. And then we do that with some other sister churches and the gospel goes further faster because of it. And it's just awesome. Um, hey, Easter, two weeks away. All right. Uh, this is my reminder to you. Uh, I just, I know y'all, hopefully every week, uh, we love being a church where people are coming to either coming back to faith. You've been away from it for a while or coming to check out Christianity for the first time. We know that that's a spot on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is a moment where people do that. I want to invite you to invite your friends, the people that are far from God, but close to you. Uh, they'll come because they trust you, right? And I want to, who knows what God might do with just a morning where they hear the gospel again. Hopefully that's every Sunday, but we know Easter is such a vital moment for that. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 20 today. So we've got a Bible, make your way over there. Let me set us up. We'll be talking about friendship today. Uh, and I was thinking back just on God's this is something I'm super passionate about, community, friendship. Uh, I've given a lot of my life teaching God's word on this area. Um, and I was thinking back, it was spring semester of my freshman year in college. We came to that time where it was time to choose your roommate, right? Who's going to be your roommate next year? That's a big decision. There's a group of us. We had started being in a, a Bible study together and we're like, maybe we'll all live on the same hall. So we go, we'll all live on the same hall together. Uh, I'll never forget Sophomore year roommate, Bill Teeter, he used to call me the nap thief because we uh, had different sleeping schedules, stuff like that. But then, you know, we made it through sophomore year. Then it comes around again. It's time to choose your roommate, spring semester, sophomore year. And the seven of us that had started in a Bible study, we make this big leap that we're now going to be in. Uh, we're going to go off campus and we're going to live together. We're going to rent out a duplex. The duplex was called Ashley Forest. All right. Ashley Forest was the nastiest grossest, dirtiest thing you can imagine. I'm talking, we had roommates that were German cockroaches. I was like, I didn't know that species existed, but they were fierce, nothing. Uh, I mean, they're incredible. And it was a gross place. It was also a lot of fun. And it was in that environment. I was like, we all took kind of a leap. We're going to choose these roommates and, and really hope that friendship is what comes out of that, right? And over the course of a couple of years, we poured in a lot of hours, sometimes doing dumb things like uh, pulling pranks on our neighbors. You know, there was a, a group of girls that lived across the driveway, uh, one of whom might be here right now. So um, she is under oath not to say anything about those days and ruin my reputation with you guys. But 
we did some things. Um, and then we would, but you know, it's also that group of guys staying up until like late in the night talking about faith and, and politics, girlfriend drama, playing Halo and NFL Blitz. Anybody knows the good days of video games. That's what that was. Um, and over that time, the Lord and his grace, man, this group of roommates morphed into a group of friends. I think about it. Um, this is, we were only together for like three years where we like, really only two where we lived in Ashley Forest, but Ashley Forest, it was the name of this dirty, nasty duplex became this like coat of arms or badge of honor that we still call ourselves to this day, right? We have been in weddings together. We've stood beside each other uh, as we have grieved the loss of a parent, different ones of us. We have been there when they've uh, celebrated having kids. Uh, just the other day, one of them uh, toured a college for his daughter. And I'm like, we well, are not that old. You're just stop doing that right now. But you know, it's those long-standing friendships, that's God and his grace. We chose some people that we hoped would be friends. And then in his grace, we became really good friends. We built those friendships over time. And in his grace, God's allowed that to happen in Courtney and I's life in seminary in Raleigh-Durham, even here in Charlotte. He has fulfilled that prayer of we're going to choose some people and then we're going to hopefully build some good friendships. As we look into 1 Samuel 20, I think what's going to come out today is this idea that y'all on friendship that I believe is God's greatest gift here on earth. I really do believe, I believe his greatest gift to us on earth is friendship. And I think what we're going to see is that you do need to choose good friends. You do, but you got to build your friendships. You can choose your friends and you should choose good friends, Jesus loving friends, but you got to build your friendships. And we get this and operate this way in other areas of life. But when it comes to friendships, we often just assume because we show up, we're friends, right? Like, a coach can select his players, but he's got to build a team. Or you can sell a product, but you got to build a company. You can choose a spouse, but you have to build a marriage. Even the call to discipleship is a call to make, to form, to build over time disciples. What I'm trying to get at is that friendship is going to require some building. And I believe that it's God's greatest gift that he gives us. And the reason I say that is, Jesus himself, some are like, no, Jesus is the greatest gift. Yes, exactly. And what does he call himself towards us? John 15, 15, friend. And this is going to be the hope for us today. This is the hope for us. I don't call you servants anymore. It's what he's telling his disciples and through them to us. I don't call you servants anymore because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from the Father, all these promises from the heavenly Father that he will be with you till the end of the age, that he has a place waiting for you for eternity, that he loves you and his love is relentless and it's compassionate and it's greater than anything you can imagine. I've given it all to you and I call you friend. Even that word friend, that word friend is the Greek word phileo. It's really, it's a word for love but it's a friendship, love, it's deep, it's binding. And in his love for us, our King, King Jesus, identifies himself as our friend, as a friend. That announcement of love, that one that you don't earn, that you don't build, that love becomes the primary building material of our friendships today, that we're gonna see today. The hope for today is the love for you and the friendship of Christ. That's not only the hope, that becomes the building block by which we build friendships. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we're gonna see this beautiful picture of friendship. I'm gonna show you the need for it. I'm gonna show you the friendship covenant that these 
two guys enter into that we're going to see our two main characters. And I'm going to kind of let you see the different pieces of the friendship covenant. And then we're going to come right back and land in the hope of Jesus for our friendships. So we're going to look at the friendship between our main character that we've been walking with, King David, was David anointed to be the future king, David. And then this guy named Jonathan. Jonathan's going to be new for us today. And Jonathan is the son of the current king, King Saul, who at this point in the story has turned into a deranged tyrant. Here, right? yeah, that's where we are. If you remember this, he is, he's got an evil spirit from the Lord that's messing with him. The spirit, the true spirit of the Lord has left him and is now on David. And so you got the anointed, but not yet sitting king. And his best friend is the son of the current deranged king. That's some just setting for some drama. A lot like our friendships today, full of drama, right? All right, here's the setting, that the immediate setting we're in. Last week, we saw David defeat Goliath. It was awesome, right? Takes off his head, drops it in the middle of Saul's court. Cool ending. If you're like, what? You missed last week, uh, you can catch up. It's pretty cool. Well, now word about that spreads, not surprisingly, right? Word spreads and a victory parade breaks out. This is 1 Samuel 18, kind of setting us up for chapter 20. A victory parade breaks out and the, and the women in the parade start singing. Here's what they sing. As they dance, the women sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Uh-oh, King Saul ain't happy. He starts raging out. And now he sets his sight on killing David. And that's like the situation that makes the friendship between David and Jonathan so important. God provides David a friend who has both the desire to help him and the ability to save his life. David slays Goliath at the end of 17. Chapters 18 and 19 basically record just time after time of Jonathan saving David from his father's murderous rage. Saul tries to do this a couple of ways. He tries to indirectly kill David and directly kill David. Indirectly, Saul gets David to marry one of his daughters. And then that means that now David has to be in Saul's army and has to go. Saul sends him to the front lines and hopes, sorry, he's out on the front lines. Somebody's going to kill him, surely, right? Doesn't happen. That's the indirect way. The direct way Saul tries to kill him is he keeps hurling his spear at him. Like over and over. This is what he does for two chapters. Thankfully, Saul has the aim of a stormtrooper. He never once hits him. And so David is safe. But that's like the cycle that's happening. That takes us into chapter 20. And here in chapter 20, here we go in the text. David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? That's a fair question. I mean, all David did was help Saul. He helped him when he was tormented by an evil spirit by coming and playing music to bring him a relief. He helped him when he was tormented by Goliath, right? By going and slaying the giant. Well, now David, who has been Saul's greatest asset, now becomes something Saul, someone Saul is jealous of because he's getting the praise. And I just want to say, this is like, if you'll allow me a moment for a mini sermon within the sermon, but it's not really the full sermon, okay? Just an aside. It is so easy for us to become Saul. Your own pride and insecurity will eventually lead you to resent God's greatest gifts in your life. Look, I'll start with myself. 
Y'all, I have to every day lay down my ego and remember the great gift that I have in Christ (laughs) all the time because God is raising up great future leaders here at our church. And when one of our other pastors preaches a good sermon or builds a thriving ministry, if I think this is my kingdom and not God's kingdom, and if I'm so insecure that I need all the praise directed at me, pointed at me, I'll eventually resent the very gifts in these pastors that God has given me and given this church. Y'all, there is, I'm not the only one who's messed up. All y'all are. There's some version of that in every one of our lives. I'm just telling you, I deal with it too, which is why I need to find my security, not in what you say, but what God says over me. I have everything I need in his love for me. And if I don't rest in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for me, that God, because of Christ, calls me son, that he gives me all these promises, both here on earth and in eternity. If I don't rest and find sufficiency in that, my pride and insecurity will start to damage my life and everybody else around me. The same thing will happen for you. All right, many non-sermon, the kind of sermon over back into chapter 20, all right? Jonathan and David, Saul's all trying to kill David. So they go out to the countryside where it's safe. And there in the countryside, Jonathan and David pledge their loyalty to one another. Here's what Jonathan says. I'm going to go to verse 13 of chapter 20. If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan. He's speaking in the third person right there. Lord, punish me. And do so severely if I do not tell you and then send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. This is Jonathan acknowledging the spirit of the Lord has come on David that was once on Saul. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. That's when you know you're making a deep commitment, not even just to the man, but to his house, to his people, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. He knows that his dad is one of those. Jonathan once again swore to David and his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. We're going to turn, uh, we're going to come back to this covenant right here. When we talk about the friendship covenant, just, I want you to see the commitment. It's so serious. Jonathan is tying his own fate to David. This is not a handshake agreement. It's a covenant, a deep commitment that will prove this covenant will prove to be so vital in understanding what real friendship is. And it's based in very strong love. Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. You should already be hearing echoes of Jesus right here. I'm I'm telling you, that's our real hope. That's the real point of what we're going after today. This covenant, by the way, it's not really even a new thing for these guys. They're actually reaffirming a covenant Jonathan made with David when they first became friends. Let me show you back in chapter 18. It says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. And then as a symbolic representation of the words spoken, Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And we see what he's doing. He's handing over, this is very significant, his power to David. His robe is his identification that he's the future king. He's next in line. Saul's current king. He's the son. He's next in line. He's saying, no, no, I recognize what God is doing in your life and I will serve 
you. And in giving him his weapons, he's saying, I'm even entrusting my life to you. It's in your hands now, David. That is a deep, powerful commitment of friendship. It's self-sacrificing. I'm giving you my throne. And it is ready to go to the death. In fact, turning back to chapter 20 now, notice how he says in verse 15, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Oh man, what a foreshadow. Because at the very end in 2 Samuel chapter 20, all the way at the end of this, one of Jonathan's sons is gonna be set to be executed. Jonathan's long dead. But David doesn't kill the son. He spares the son's life because of the commitment made right here. Man, there is something in that about real friendship, isn't it? It is more powerful than death. Isn't that wild? You see it in our life. You see friends carry out the last wishes of their friends. You see them continue traditions that they made while they were still alive, not because they have to, but because their bond was so powerful, they want to. They feel like the Bible describes between David and Jonathan bound to one another, even in death. I think that's something each of us wants. The kind of friendship so powerful, death itself can't dissolve it. Again, don't you hear the echoes of Christ? Death itself cannot dissolve the friendship that Christ offers you. In fact, Paul's going to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Because in death, we only draw closer to him. It's amazing. Jonathan, so anyways, back into chapter 20, they come up, uh, Jonathan and David, to try and figure out, all right, are you going to be safe in Saul's court if you come back in because Saul's calling for you or not? Well, they come up with a rather strange plan, but effective. Jonathan tells David, all right, I want you to go wait behind a rock out in a field. I'm going to go check, see if dad wants to kill you or not. That's really what, that's what happens. I'm going to come back and I'm going to shoot some arrows. If I shoot arrows over here, this means you are safe and it's safe for you to come back. But if I shoot arrows straight further away, that means you need to go because it's not safe here. So Jonathan goes to dinner and Saul says, hey, where is David? Jonathan said, well, he asked if he could go to Bethlehem to see his family. So I told him he could go. Verse 30, Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Y'all, some of y'all are like, where's the Bible going right now? (laughs) Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? He has brought his mother into this. That's how bad it is. Every day Jesse's son lives on earth you and your kingship are not secure. Yeah, right. He is, what he's really concerned with is about himself, right? This is what we tend to do, deflect like that. Now sin for him, bring him to me, he must die. Verse 32, Jonathan answered his father back. Why is he to be killed? What has he done? <laughs> and Saul being Saul, threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's it probably tipped him off, right? So Jonathan runs back out into the field, shoots the arrow the long way, indicating David needs to flee. Verse 41, David got up from the south side of the stone. Ezel fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. And listen, I want to pause right here. Some of this embrace, this kissing one another, weeping with one another might make some of you uncomfortable, but it's probably only if you come from a culture that isn't very comfortable showing physical affection. 
Like, y'all, I am ethnically and culturally white. Now, my ancestors are Scottish. The Scots, man, they know how to show some physical affection. But something happened when we left the Highlands and came over to America. And after some time, we just stopped doing that. Somehow we left that part of our culture back there. And listen, in general, there are plenty of exceptions, but in general, American white folk in particular are just less physically affectionate than most other cultures. But we are really great at being awkward, okay? We got that for us, right? And I'm the chief of sinners in that regard. And that's actually why I am confident. I was thinking about this this week. The combination of us not being great at showing physical affection and being so awkward is why I'm confident it was white people that invented the side hug. Have you seen the side hug? Y'all know this thing? Like, this is only something we do, guys. Like, if, if, you're, if you're like me. They, they, everybody else from other cultures are like, what are you doing? This is weird. Um, look, I say that because of that cultural reality that if you come from a white background, you might squirm a little at this embrace between friends. In fact, I have read theories on David and Jonathan coming only from white authors who will say that this must mean this was a romantic relationship. And this is the proof of the Bible's endorsement of the homosexual lifestyle. Y'all, as if that's the only logical explanation for two men embracing. No, in actuality, this is simply a close friendship between two Middle Eastern men. Called um, one of our members, a friend of mine who's a, a Middle Easterner who's here at our church. And I was like, hey man, you read this? You know, he goes, yeah, I never thought anything about this until I got um, friendship in the white church where things were just like a little bit awkward about this. So my point is, before we go conjuring unfounded theories to make the Bible support our agenda, let's pay attention to the cultural context the Bible's written in. And as my Middle Eastern friends will attest and several others from affectionate cultures, physically affectionate cultures will as well, embracing one another and kissing one another is a normative show of affection. It's a big show of trust. And this is a big moment. They're only gonna see each other one more time. They don't know this yet. They're gonna have one more moment where they see each other, but it's this moment. It's like, man, I'm sending you off to war. I may never see you again. Handshake ain't gonna do it. Fist pound ain't gonna do it. And by the way, it's another reason we wanna pursue becoming a multicultural church because learning from one another's cultures helps enrich our understanding of God's love and God's world. In this case, the Bible describes God's love for me in rich, physically affectionate language. And I experienced that love through brothers and sisters in Christ from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I'll never forget the first time Alan Wadohio, who went from being our student pastor to being our church planter out in Nairobi, first time he comes and he embraces me. He's African, comes with this big hug. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never knew the love of God before I was swallowed up by this man's hug. It was wonderful. Right? I'm better for that. I'm better for it. Anyways, some of y'all just need a real hug, okay? I'm, I'm happy for all the awkwardness I just made for all of you that love your side hug. Verse 42, Jonathan then said to David, this is now their conversation, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. David left. Jonathan goes back to the city. Like I said, they'd only see each other one more time just for a brief moment. Now that we've seen this friendship, I want to talk about the need for something like this. I want to talk about the building blocks. I want to talk about Christ. Look, here's the first thing. Like I said, you choose your friends, but you got to build friendships. Let me start with that first part. You need good friends, so please choose well. You need good friends, so choose well. There's a, a study that came out um, 
in 2018, y'all, I don't know if you know this, but health insurance companies regularly study the loneliness epidemic that is happening in America. Because what's happening emotionally affects you physically. They even know it, all right? You are one whole person. Study comes out 2018 that describes Americans as friendly but lonely. Like they're friendly to, I thought, that is the best short summary of the city of Charlotte I think I've ever heard. Friendly but lonely. A lot of people friendly towards one another. Got that Southern veneer. But yet, I, and I have heard this from people lived here longer than I have, it's so hard to make real friends. It's so hard. I feel alone. So if you feel that way, I say that, don't, you're not in trouble. There's nothing's wrong with you. It's actually the norm here. We've got to break through that. So just what I'm trying to show you in this, the great hope that we have being in the church together, y'all. David's life was on the line. He was doomed. And into his doom steps the one guy who has the positional power to help save him from death and the desire to do so. If that, that ringing in your ears is the gospel of Christ. The positional power to save you from death and the love and desire to do so. As the king's son, Jonathan has power and knowledge about the king. He can advocate for David. He can warn David. Big provision, like I said, David's later gonna be the one in the position of power to help his son. We need good friends. Proverbs 13 tells us, man, the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Once heard a pastor explain that this way. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Show me your friends right now, I'll show you where you're headed. We are so influenced by our friends. Years ago, um, I love it when uh, the work, and I believe that the, the world of science reveals God's world, the more that the world of science studies it. Uh, years ago, scientists were trying to decide why fish swam in schools. So they isolated the part of the brain that caused the fish to swim in schools. They took one of the fish out and performed a partial lobotomy on it, pulled off part of its brain, and then put it back in the water. And sure enough, the fish could still swim, but he swam all by himself and not in a school. You know what happened? The rest of the fish started to follow the fish that only had half a brain. And I thought, now we call that TikTok, right? That's the new name for that same thing. But this is how we are, right? So my, my encouragement to you is to choose a friend with a brain, right? And choose a friend who loves Jesus because you will begin to look like them. That need for friendship, it's encoded on your soul by your designer, when God creates Adam, puts him in the garden. In perfect paradise, God says something is not good. What is it? It's that he is alone. So what does God do? God designs a companion, Eve. And so we're like, oh, so we're, what you're actually saying is we're designed for marriage, not friendship. No, 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 no. You're created for friendship. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but at the core of it is friendship. Single people, listen up. I once heard Tim Kelly, he's a pastor up in Manhattan, big influence on, on my life for sure. He kind of said tongue in cheek. He said, listen, marriage never really helped anybody. He said, oh, easy Vince, not too loud. Um, but Vince gets my point. Look, he said, it's not marriage that helps you. It's the friendship within your marriage that helps you. Like if your brother gets cancer, it's not your joint bank account in marriage that provides comfort for you. When something tragic like that happens, it's not sex that is the real comfort for you. It is the friendship within marriage that comforts you. And I say that to say marriage is not the answer to loneliness. Friendship is. 
because you can have a lonely marriage. Many do. What makes marriage powerful is when there's a deep friendship within it. And to say that, to say, well, your desire, if it is so to be married, if you have that desire, that's a good, good desire, but you need friendship more than you need marriage. Now let's talk about the friendship covenant we see in David and Jonathan. I want to lay this out for just a minute. The parts of the friendship covenant, they made this covenant, said it a few times. Here's the parts of the friendship covenant. I've kind of written it like you could recite it to a friend. So we're like, I'm never going to recite a covenant with another friend. Well, then you might remain in some shallow relationships. I just want to challenge you on this for a minute. Here's the first part. The friendship covenant, what I see with these two guys, we will be real with one another. That's what they committed to each other. Another way to say it is we're going to be transparent with one another. And this one takes time because my goodness, so much trust is required. First Samuel 18 opens with David and Jonathan bound to one another. Some translations even go so far as to say they were of one spirit. David's life's in danger. They don't have time to sit around and talk shallow, shoot the breeze. And the reason some of you feel like you know a lot of people friendly, but don't really know anybody lonely. As you guys, it's just right here. You got to commit to be real with some people. And so does your friend. You might say, well, friendship's not life or death for me like it was. Yes, it is. Your friends will save you from your own spiritual death, which has way longer reaching implications than your life here on earth. Your friends will save you from your own spiritual death time and time again. They'll save you from self-destruction. They'll save you from so much pain. That is why you need good Jesus-loving friends. Look, this is Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Watch out, brothers and sisters. Which, by the way, is awesome. The Bible talks about friendship in the language of family. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living, living God. How do you watch out? But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. None of you is hardened by the blind spots that sin creates in your life. That kind of friendship, the one that can see sin deceiving you and then call you back from it, gosh, that requires us to deal in reality. Y'all, on a very regular basis, I got a friend in my community group pulls me aside and asks me very invasive questions. You know why? Because I have watched too many friends, too many people I know get destroyed by their own sin to know that I know better than that. I, I don't trust, I'm not gonna completely full out just trust myself. James talks about, he says, sin that's fully grown in secret, undisclosed places in our lives eventually brings death. So I invite the investigation. And you don't got to have that kind of transparency with everyone. But I wonder if the reason some of you are struggling is you, when someone even, do they even know that they have the license to investigate and ask questions and to do so in love? The probably the most common conversation Courtney and I have, or one of the most common when it comes to shepherding here at Mercy is I wonder if anyone has the, the voice, the license to speak into their life, what we're seeing right now, so that they'll receive it. Do you invite the investigation? Now look, again, I'm not, I don't have that kind of transparency with everyone, but you do need some. They need to be real with you, you with them. Another way to say it, you don't need nice friends. You need kind friends. Nice friends say, bless your heart and they never question anything you do. They celebrate your wins, and then they ghost you when either you disappoint them or they find somebody cooler to hang out with. A kind friend sticks with you at all times and tells you you're in the wrong. We need kind, real friends. We don't need fake, nice friends. We can find those on social media by the droves. 
And by the way, it is okay. Let me, this is important. It's okay to have a relationship where this realness is one way, but that's called ministry. Look, some of your friends are actually ministry assignments from God to you right now. Their life's a hot mess. You're helping them out through it. Praise God. Welcome to the team, okay? But you also need some friends where you're able to be real with. And some of you are like, well, I don't have any of those. If that's, if that's the case, then you're realizing you are the ministry assignment in other people's lives right now, okay? And that's good. Well, I know there's some people in our church and I am their ministry assignment, all right? And I'm grateful, humbled by it and grateful for it. All right, that's the first thing. We gotta be real with one another. Second thing so powerful is Jonathan's loyalty to David that comes at such great cost. I'm gonna borrow this next way of talking about the friendship covenant from the TV show Friends because it just fits. The friendship covenant says, I'll be there for you, all right? Even embraces the Rembrandt song, whatever. What I want you to see here is that Jonathan is loyal to David, but he's also just present in the struggle. David's fleeing and Jonathan just keeps showing up. He's ready to help to the death. I can tell you, faithful presence, just showing up. That's the building material for a real friendship. From the moment David walks into King Saul's court, Jonathan made a conscious decision to be there for him. Kept showing up time after time. David could count on Jonathan. Y'all, that's how friendship trust is built. It's presence, faithful presence. And the great news is you don't have to be athletic, smart, good looking, wealthy, none of that. You just have to be there. That's it. Jonathan's aim is to help David. That's Jonathan's heart. He loves David. He wants to help him survive. This friendship offers very little to Jonathan, except for the occasional spear thrown at him. It just, he didn't see this as about himself. That's the covenant category of friendship. It's really, it's an important word. It's not often applied to friendship. Some people enter into friendships that aren't friendships. They are a network, right? Where the arrangement is a little bit more of a contract. I agree to help you. You agree to help me. And we'll both advance up the ladder of the social world together. At the end of the day, we see friendship as a means to an end, but not the end in itself. In contrast, a covenant. It's a commitment that just says, I'm here for you. The friendship itself, this is the end. So I'm not wondering what I can get from you as much as how can I help you become the person God has created you to be? So I do things like I listen to you. I ask you questions like, well, how do you believe God's gifted you? What is God doing in your life right now? How can I help? Well, I don't know how to say this, but in order to do that, it's going to take time. That takes time and intentionality. Look, <laughs> You're going to have to, if it's going to take that kind of time, you have to stop trying to build your friendships around your schedule. You're going to have to build your schedule around your friendships. Listen, teenagers, one in space, I'm experiencing this right now. Uh, let me talk to teenagers and their parents. I, I'm, I'm feeling this, how much my kids' activities are competing with their church for involvement or who's going to be their friends. You only get a handful of years growing up to build friendships. I'm not knocking activities. I love them. Particularly for me, I love team sports, the character building, everything else. What I'm saying is that there is a group of people that will become your home base. And you've got a little bit of time to shape that and you get to choose that. And faithful presence is how it is a building block for good friendship. I see it in my teenagers. That's where activity versus church seems to crescendo in a clash 
Church can be another activity or it can be the place where they build real friendships. But building friendships requires faithful presence. And I promise, I promise, I promise it won't be convenient. Now, let me step off the toes of parents and teenagers. It's true for all of us. If you're looking for convenience and what you can get out of it, don't waste your time. You're going to have to sacrifice and be faithfully present over time. The Lord will build it. Let's keep going. The friendship covenant says we sacrifice for one another like Christ. I told you this is all kind of pointing to Christ. Jonathan's love for David plays out in constant sacrifice, sacrifices his position in the kingdom, his throne, his very life. And that's where Jonathan points us to Christ. Told you last week, every Old Testament narrative offers two things. It offers either, maybe it's an example to follow or an example to avoid, but then a deeper foundational meaning is that it points you to the person and work of Jesus. And in the simplest terms, Jonathan is laying down his life for his friend. True friendship's not just present, but it's sacrifice, self-sacrificing. And that's John 15 again. This is my command. Love one another. How? As I've loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Self-sacrifice. That's the marker of friendship, y'all. I give myself away for your benefit. This is the gospel, the foundation of true friendship. When Jesus says this in John 15, he's predicting his own death. He's going to lay down his life for his friends and say, this is the way. But so when our friends in need, we meet the need at our own expense. When a friend, listen to me, offends you or lets you down, we forgive just as we have been forgiven. I think that's the hardest one. I don't know. Maybe it's in our days we feel so entitled to everybody respecting us and giving us everything we want all the time, right? I think this is hard, but this is the mark of Jesus-loving friendship. We forgive each other. And the best friendships I've found are often forged through the fire of conflict. We get on the other side of that, we got real friendship. That's why you need Jesus. Leads me to the final part of our friendship covenant. We go to Jesus first and then to each other. We go to Jesus first and then to each other. Truthfully, I'm pulling this from the whole council of scripture. What I see in 1 Samuel uh, 18, 19, and 20 is the reason Jonathan commits himself to David is because he believes that God has anointed David. And Jonathan's allegiance to God is what makes him pledge his allegiance to David. If Jonathan doesn't have allegiance to the Lord, he doesn't care about David. In fact, he's probably going to join his dad in trying to kill David. Likewise, our friendships got to be built on our relationship with God himself. You cannot depend on earthly sinners to supply what only Jesus can supply for you. Your sense of acceptance, love, fulfillment, it's got to be found in what he did for you. It's got to be found in him. No earthly friendship, not even, especially not your marriage, can hold the weight of your soul. Look, good friends are there to encourage your soul, to encourage you in trouble, to point you to Jesus, but they are not Jesus. They can't be. And if you don't learn to lean on Jesus for love, for acceptance, what you'll do, you won't even realize it happens because the devil's the great deceiver. What you will do is you'll start to point your eyes towards your closest friends and expect them to be perfect like Christ towards you. You'll put Christ, the weight of Christ onto your friends and they can't carry it. You'll scrutinize their every move. You'll be anxious and worried about what they do say and what they don't say. 
you will expect perfection. You'll be waiting on them to disappoint you. And then you'll be devastated when they do. What's happening there is you are putting something on them they were never meant to carry. That was meant for Christ alone. The best thing you can do for your friends is meet with Jesus every day. That's the best thing you can do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a fantastic little book on this whole thing. It's called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what he says is, we are bringers of grace to one another. That's what a friendship is. We go to God each morning, meet with God, we're reminded of his grace. And then we walk towards our friends and say, here's the grace that I found from God today. What'd you find? Here's the grace for you. I don't even know if you need it today, but I know how fragile our hearts are. I know you need grace. God loves you. Look, here's what I saw about God's love. Here it is. That's friendship. The best thing you can do is walk through your life with your friends in the power of God that is sustained for you by spending time with him. That's a good friend, y'all. That's a good friend. And my great news for you is that the love of God in the friendship of Christ never runs out. We think about it all the time. But do you actually depend on it? Do you go to that well that never runs dry? It is there for you in full supply today. You don't got to have a seminary degree in order to understand it. You don't got to be a certain age in order to receive it in full. There's no JV Holy Spirit. You get the full Holy Spirit in Christ supplying you his love moment after moment. Do you know the friendship of Christ? Y'all, that's what we're trying to do here as a church. That's why we gather together every week to remind one another of the hope of the gospel that despite how messed up you are, God has still extended his love for you, a relationship with you where he calls you friend. You can receive that, be helped by it, and then turn around. That'll keep you from judging your friends. It'll keep you from doing that thing where you depend on them so much for everything because you've just been humbled by what Christ has done for you. You can receive his love and walk in that love and forgive and love and help one another. Grow into the image of Christ. That's the body. Growing into the image of Christ together. That's it, y'all. You can choose your friends, but you gotta build your friendships. You gotta be faithful, present, real, but most of all, man, you just gotta receive the love of Christ and build your life on that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for not only the example of Christ who lays down his life, the, the foreshadowing of it that we see in Jonathan, but thank you for the fruit of Christ's love for us, the result of it being that a way has been made. A way has been made for us to have a relationship with you. Christ, your son, the firstborn among many brothers. He calls us friend, makes the way to be called son, daughter of the father. What a gift we're not worthy of. I want to give you just a moment to respond. Maybe you need to pray for a friend. Maybe you need to pray that God would bring a friend. You're new to the city or Man, just been experiencing a season of loneliness. Maybe you need to pray for your marriage that the Lord would break through and take something that has become cold and revive it into a friendship. Maybe you need to pray for your lost friend that the Lord bring them home and would use you in that. You, you respond to the Lord for just a moment.
Us. Sometimes we sing it so much that it can be even a little uh, trite for us, but what a friend we have in Jesus. Father, would that not get old on us? Would that never get familiar to my heart? What a friend I have in Jesus. Jesus, would you be lifted up in our eyes and hearts and minds? And would we love one another, befriend one another, standing in the love of Christ, modeling the love of Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's respond together to what God has done for us. Rest of it.